You're listening to Season 1, Episode 1. I'm Jared Dubin, here with my co-host Jordan White. This is the podcast where we talk to interesting people about interesting things that they are interested in that are not their day jobs. Our first episode was recorded back in October 2017. We talked to 538 senior writer Chris Herring about his side job teaching journalism at Northwestern University. Jordan, I had a whole lot of fun talking to Chris about this. How about you? Yeah, I did too. I thought it was fun and also just really interesting. Um, you know, learning how Chris learned how to teach since that's, you know, not his background, learning that this is something that he always wanted to do but didn't think he'd get the chance to do it. Um, and then I really appreciated uh, you know, kind of towards the end of the conversation, uh, talking about, you know, um diversity in newsrooms, how we can get more diversity in the newsrooms and how he's kinda like he's one of the people kind of taking charge of that in a way. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating for sure. That I think was, you know, the most interesting part of our discussion. But I was also interested by the fact that he did not take journalism classes when he himself was in college. Yeah. And, you know, he sort of learned on the job at the Michigan Daily and then at the Wall Street Journal. And now obviously he's at 538. And, you know, the influence of J.A. Adande and bringing him to Northwestern uh, was an interesting part of our discussion as well. I had a lot of fun talking to Chris about this. He's, you know, a good friend of mine in the industry and he's a really thoughtful and interesting person. And his perspective on this was, was really delightful. Uh, um, it was a good conversation. I had a lot of fun doing it and I would love to talk to him even more about it just outside of the podcast <laughs> setting. And, um, and I'm sure I will when I see him. Um, with that, though, let's get you to uh, Season 1, Episode 1 of That's Not My Job, talking to 538's Chris Herring about teaching journalism at Northwestern. Enjoy. Chris, thank you so much for coming on, man. We really appreciate it. It's no problem at all. I appreciate you guys wanting to have me on in the first place. Yeah, I think this is you know a really interesting topic, obviously, because so many people know you for your actual work. And I know that you get a lot, a lot of emails and tweets and questions about people that want to get into sports writing or writing in general. And I know that you take a lot of time answering them. And now you have a side job where not only do you answer those questions, you actually teach people what to do. And I think it's really cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little different. You know, it's, it, I feel like I'm kind of an arm's length when I'm answering emails versus having essentially office hours and emails from students that are asking questions about how to fix their stories or emails griping at me because they pitch a story and I tell them, no, that's not good enough. It's a lot different having to deal with people face to face, but I, I like it and I get more out of that. And even today, I, um, the reason that we had to do this a little bit later in the day or a little bit later in the week than I was hoping, I, I was talking to some high school students that were out for kind of a journalism day, um, prospective journalism students um, that came by to Northwestern today and did like a panel discussion with them and took a bunch of questions from them, which was so cool and like probably the nerdiest thing I've ever seen because they were all asking to come up and ask, take pictures with me and a couple of the other people that are on the panel. And it's like, you guys are taking pictures with people that like of people that nobody really knows outside of Chicago, maybe. Uh, but awesome that they're that excited about it. And it made me wish that I had stuff like that when I was in high school. I know you wrote for, you know, your school paper when you were in high school, you wrote for um, the Michigan daily when you were at Michigan, what journalism classes did you take when you were in school? So Michigan had no journalism school at all. So I didn't take any journalism classes at Michigan. Uh, all I did there was the school paper. 
which to me, that was more valuable than my education in school. Like I, my grades weren't bad, but they weren't anything to, you know, they were, I wasn't going to get into like a great, great grad school just based on the fact that I had a three Oh or three one at Michigan. I think that's what I ended up with. Um, you know, it would have been more, if I'd gotten in somewhere, it would have been more because I had all the experience with the paper and a bunch of really cool internships and, and clips to show and stuff like that. But I, in high school, basically my story was that my best friend took a high school journalism class and it was, uh, something that we, we came home and talked on the phone every day and he told me how cool it was. And it is probably one of the first times and maybe the only time in my life that I've gotten extremely, extremely jealous listening to someone else describe their situation. I was so mad that he was in that class and I wasn't that basically I said, I have to take that next year when I have an elect a free elective that I can take. And so I took it the following year. I loved it. Like from the first day, I thought it was so cool. We got our homework assignment. It was like to write a story about something. And I, I went home and I like worked on it for hours and turned it in and, couldn't wait to see what the teacher's comments were on the, on the story. And I took every assignment like that. And I, I, it was always the first homework I did. And we had a two, a two part class kind of for journalism. There was one class that you took as pretty much an intro course, just to kind of teach you how it works. And then if you do well enough in that, and the teacher thinks you're good enough at it, you can take the second part of the course, which is to actually work for the school's newspaper. And so newspaper was a class in high school and it was actually pretty cool because we got time, obviously, during the day to work on the newspaper that we put out every, was it once a month or every two weeks? I can't remember. But on top of that, we had a, so a school newspaper, we had a radio station at our school and we had a TV station at our school. And I worked for all three and loved every minute of it. It was just so cool and gave us so much experience and so many chances to kind of do well, but also make a ton of mistakes. And um, it was great practice. And I remember I, being so proud of that and taking my clips from the high school paper to uh, to Michigan with me the first day of class. And I remember my, the editors there were like, uh, thanks, we don't need any of that, but thank you. Like, I kind of played myself bringing all that stuff with me and a resume. Uh, I think turn, stuff turned out okay anyway, but I remember being kind of embarrassed because I thought I needed all that stuff. But um, but I had really, really good experiences and opportunities as a, as a kid in high school and then in college to to basically go up to people and just ask them questions and really good opportunity to learn that way. I feel like the, so have you in, uh, uh, just quickly, I feel like the overriding thing we've learned so far is that Chris was a much more productive high schooler than I was. <laughs> Same. Same. Uh, um, I so don't I, think so. I, I the, you know, what's funny? Like I could have been even more into that stuff in high school, but I, I remember being really angry one year. I think, I think this was my senior year. I was in like seven or eight activities between like sports teams and baseball and basketball, not through varsity, but basketball, gospel choir, our honors choir, obviously the newspaper. I think I was in like French club. We had a, a magical group that was like our honors, honors choir, where we would go tour and go to like senior homes and stuff and sing for people. And I remember only making it into like one or two of my group's yearbook photos because I couldn't crisscross the school quickly enough to get into the, each photo. They were all being taken at like the same time. And obviously the newspaper I was a part of too. So I remember like not being singularly focused and thinking at the time that like, man, I really got to narrow down what I like, but then also thinking that like, I, I still am not great at managing my time. And you know, maybe that it was good that I had my time 
split in so many different directions so that I can kind of handle that now because I've never been someone that only had one focus until maybe part of college. But up until then, I never really had a singular focus. Uh, Chris, did, have you incorporated anything from that high school class? I mean, like what can you what you can remember of it into like, your current classes? A little, probably not as much as I would have liked to, but really, I mean, what I, I guess since this is my first time teaching, I'm a really firm believer in like not moving on until everybody understands stuff. And so by thinking that way, maybe I run a little bit of risk in holding some people back, which I'm hoping not to do that. But like, for instance, I'm teaching first year grad students. Well, it's only one year program, but like grad students at Northwestern and some of them have never, you know, had never even regularly read newspapers. And so trying to get them to a point where they can write leads. If I feel like we're in week five of my class now, it's a 12 week course. If you're still struggling to write leads, like I can't realistically teach you how to write a feature. And so drilling stuff home and really making sure that they understand how to write leads and how leads might vary depending on what kind of story it is. Like I'm sitting with them after class and emailing with them and texting with them just to make sure, like even sending them examples of stuff that I think works versus stuff that I think doesn't work. Um, and I mean, my teacher did a little bit of that with me. I don't think she did it with the whole class all at the same time, but I'm really reluctant to kind of move on if I feel like a lot of people are stuck. Um, and that's probably my biggest frustration right now is like this class that I'm teaching right now is a class where there's six sections of it. And we're all teaching off the same syllabus. It's a syllabus that was pre-made, so it wasn't my own. And so I kind of feel like there are weeks that move way too quickly and other weeks that are like, we don't need that much time to work on certain things. And so that that would be the thing that I would change. And probably what I feel like is a little different is that um, this moves a lot faster. Like we had that class every day in high school, whereas with this, this is just twice a week and it's for hours and hours at a time, three hour classes each time. So it's a little different with the way it works. So something I want, I want to follow up on is how did you develop? I know you're new to this, but how did you develop, I guess, your teaching philosophy? I really, so the, the, the first class I taught was a class that was a data journalism course. And so to me, it was kind of talking to them about what I thought the big picture issues were, the way I approach, the way I do my job. And figuring that, look, this works for me and here's how I put it into practice and using a lot of examples to show them that and then kind of giving them a chance to try it. And I I feel like more of the focus there was kind of on their homework assignments to kind of let them do some trial and error. And, you know, like if you're confused by this, let me know if it makes sense to you, let me know. And then we'll, we'll add on to it from there. And that made it a little bit easier to kind of go person by person as opposed to now where everybody's kind of learning the same concepts at the same time. So I, I pretty much went off my own experience and I thought about the order I learned stuff in and was hoping that it would kind of make sense to them the same way I learned it. Yeah, that's where I was going to go next. I think like an interesting way to get into, you know, what you're like as a teacher is to look back on like the teachers that you had, whether it was in high school or college and you know, what ways did you, like to be taught, you know, what teachers stuck out in your mind as like teaching you things, not necessarily in the right way, but just interesting ways that made you develop the skills you have now, whether it's for the job that you're doing or for the the classes that you're teaching. Like, how did you like to learn and have you applied that to the way that you're teaching the kids that are in your classes now? I, I honestly think because I didn't have like a formal 
education. The, the closest thing, I say this a lot, like the Michigan Daily kind of raised me in terms of writing because there was no program other than my high school paper that I really had journalism training. You know, like Michigan, the tough thing about it was there was literally no journalism program. And so whereas I spent 70 or 80 hours a week in the newsroom, for a lot of schools, if you do that, that would count toward credits and stuff and apply it towards school. That was all, it was totally extracurricular. So I learned a lot of stuff from there, just like basic lead writing and stuff and kind of how to draw out a lead and, and try to display a lot of color and a lot of detail. I actually just sent someone a story. I had a student that did a, a volleyball game story uh, that Northwestern played in. And she, you know, we had spent the first few weeks just writing, trying to nail down hard news leads. And then she wrote a piece with like a hard news lead on the volleyball game. And I read it and I was like, and I, I kind of rearranged it and made some new suggestions to her. And she was like, wait, but you're like leading with details and you're not saying what the score was right in the lead. And I was trying to tell her, I was like, well, yeah. And, and part of the reason I'm doing that is just because when you write about different sorts of things, you can kind of be a little bit more loose with some of the rules. So that's probably the toughest thing I'm finding right now is that it's one of the students told me like your grading is kind of subjective. And I'm like, well, writing is a very subjective thing, but in terms of lead writing, that's subjective too. Like you could write a hard news lead on a story that is about a fun volleyball game, but like you'll look back on it later and wonder why you did that. Um, so I think some of what I'm doing, a lot of what I'm teaching now is stuff that I was taught at the wall street journal where we were trying not to be like the same as everybody else. And we were trying to basically pull out interesting information, but try to explain why something was different and to look for ways that we could make it different before we even started writing the kind of, I always use this example, kind of almost be like a, a mad scientist and put on a lab coat and try to analyze something. And it's almost like a research paper. That's the way I approached the Knicks beat when I was at the Wall Street Journal. These students aren't quite at that stage, but the students that I taught last quarter who were in their last quarter of journalism school, I was working on stuff like that with them where I had one student, um, one of the assignments I gave out was to pick four numbers, one that you like, one that you don't like, one that you understand and one that you don't understand and kind of write up a, a short summary about each one. And then the next assignment after that was to try to pick one of those four to write something longer about and potentially do like a project on. And he picked hockey and specifically looking at why two players can get an assist in hockey, like the idea of a hockey assist and basically saying like, so guys, even if you're taking a shot and the shot like ricochets off of someone, that person can still get an assist. And that doesn't make sense to me because he's not trying to pass. And so he basically looked at that and like extrapolated how many, like which guys would have the most assists like that, which are based off shots and basically like looking at if that's a skill or not based on if those guys are regularly at the top of the leaderboard in that category. And I gave him a really good grade for that because even though it didn't necessarily yield like a regular person at the top of that list and someone that's really good at that every year, his thinking was right. It's the same way I would approach a story. And so that's been interesting, like being able to try to walk people through how I would do it and seeing how close to that they can get within a couple of weeks or a couple of months, because I think it works for the most part. I, I know I enjoy doing that. And I know people seem to enjoy reading that sort of thing. So that's an interesting angle, too, because, you know, writing is your profession and you have a certain style and way you do things and way you think about things. And, you know, you mentioned trying to, to think about coming from ideas in a different direction than maybe other people would. And you did that at the journal and you do that at 538 
what's it like to teach and grade students that may not come at things the same way? Like, is, is there, you know, a case where somebody does a very straightforward story in a very straightforward way, but they do it so well that you're impressed by it? Like, how do you separate, you know, your process and the way you would think and the way you would write from somebody who does things differently, but does it well enough that they should still, you know, quote unquote, deserve a good grade? Oh, no question. I mean, so part of it is what class I'm teaching. If I'm teaching a data journalism class like I did last quarter, and I think I was the first one in the program to teach that. That was actually part of why J.A. Adande hired me uh, or, or played a big, big role in getting me hired at Northwestern and wanted me there. And he told me, you know, we're really looking to kind of bolster um, our class offerings with regards to people that can kind of speak in a math-oriented language, even though I, hate, I think I'm horrible at math. So... I thought that was even better being able to teach people and being able to tell them almost like a testimony, like, look, I'm bad at math too. Don't worry about it. You can get through this and do this job pretty well, even if you don't feel like you're really math intensive. And so that was part of it, but that was that class. That was the data journalism class. The class I'm teaching now is called methods, which basically means because these are first quarter students, you're walking them through the ABCs of journalism. You're walking them through how to conduct a man on the street interview. You're walking them through how to actually incorporate a quote into a story. You're teaching them how to write a lead. You're teaching them how to fairness and like, um, you know, being equal in the story and giving both sides a chance to respond. This week we taught them internet sourcing and kind of how to be able to judge and be cynical about sourcing and, and what a person is telling you and whether they're telling you the truth. Uh, you know, we, we teach them really basic things in this class and so they're writing relatively basic stories, and that's totally fine. Uh, so I'm not, I'm definitely not grading anyone down for writing something that is kind of a more cut and dry story. Um, the, the last assignment I graded was a building collapse, and someone kind of writing about how that impacted the businesses right around it. Um, one of the best assignments I graded this past week was someone. There was a shooting that's gotten a decent amount of attention here in Chicago. Someone got caught kind of in a crossfire, um, not the intended target of the shooting. And a 64-year-old woman who was a math teacher in elementary school and kind of beloved by her community. And so my student saw where it happened and she said, Chris, could I go write a spot news, like a hard news story about this? But she didn't find out about it until Saturday and it happened on Friday. And so I kind of just a little bit kind of walked her through the idea of what a second day story looks like where you're getting... You know, there are already the established details of who this was, how she got killed. So now the second day story is like, all right, what more do you have to report here? And then that becomes your lead. And she did a fantastic job with that. Like all just pretty basic details, but good details that other newspapers probably didn't have that day. And she got a great grade for that. And that has nothing to do with what I do on a day to day basis. Obviously, I used to cover crime and law and stuff. But um, but, you know, I, I feel like I, I, I'm understanding of the fact that these are not these are not going to be Zach Lowe type <laughs> stories, you know, in, in week five of a course that they don't know anything about as they first get here. And we're going to go over data with them actually this week. And it was funny because the, the person that is kind of running these six sections of the class walked up to me. He's like, Chris, we're going to like put everybody together in the same classroom and kind of just do the math part and the statistic data part together. You and your group, you and your class are invited in. I was like, I think I can hold this one down on my own, but thank you. Um, just because, you know, this is the one area where I'm totally comfortable and I just taught this class last quarter. 
But generally speaking, everything else is so base level that some of the stuff I've kind of had to brush up on myself and kind of muscles I haven't flexed in a long time, you know, probably a a good eight, nine, ten years because I've been in sports reporting for so long now. And a lot of the stuff was like how to cover a city council meeting. And so I'm, I'm very lenient with a lot of the stuff, but I feel like, you know, anybody, this is stuff that anybody would look at and say, like, this is a good story. This is a story that needs a little bit more work just because. I haven't done it in so long either. And it forces me to think about how I'd write these same stories. What, uh, what aspect has been, have you found has been like the toughest to teach either of journalism or writing? It hasn't been voice. Has it been structure? Has it been, uh, interviewing? I think, um, the structure is tough for this group because it's a brand new group of students and some of them have never written before. Some of them are more interested in types of journalism that aren't writing. And so, that's challenging because it's like not only is it challenging to learn anyway, but it's also kind of challenging to try to explain the practicality of needing to know how to write. If someone only wants to be in front of a camera, um, I still think there's value there, but it's, it's a little t- challenging, more challenging to kind of motivate people to want to learn that. Um, part of it is explaining to them again, because so much of this stuff is kind of subjective, at least from where they sit. I think it's all pretty necessary and, and that it's pretty clear for me. And I think a lot of other professional journalists would too, but for them, um, they're, they're still young. It's almost like children to some extent where they're like, why they ask you why you have to do certain things. And so when they tell me they want to write a story and I say, okay, my first question normally is like, what's the angle? And they're like, well, he's coming to speak at the campus. Oh, okay. Like what, but what is, what's the angle? And they're like, well, why do I need an angle? He's coming to speak at the campus. And, Stuff like that. Uh, one case, I was a really, really bright student of mine that I have. She looked at me and she, I was kind of, I had her sit with me while I was editing her story and I lengthened her lead out to make it probably closer to 45 or 50 words. It was a longer lead for the first sentence, sentence and a half. And she's like, wait, 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 you're making the first sentence way too long. Why are you doing this? <laughs> it is like, I promise you it's going to be okay. Like if I can get through it and sit through it and read it. And could imagine this being in a newspaper, like very rarely is somebody going to tell you that your lead's too long. Like if you tell me that a meeting happened today and 14 people attended and that it happened at Evanston Township High School and that it started at 2.30, ended at 5.30 and that, you know, that three of the people were wearing blue sweaters. Like I kind of feel like that's how some of the leads come in really early on because like the first or second week, you kind of teach them the five W's, the who, what, why, when, where and the how or whatever. And so then for those first week or two after that, it's they're they're writing in a really robotic form where they're just literally trying to make sure they've kind of dotted every I and crossed every T of what you told them about the week before that. And so they're making sure they've hit those five W's, but it makes their lead 89 words long and they've answered all those questions, but they still haven't necessarily told you why it's important. And it takes time to learn that. But it's like some of it really requires them to trust me that I I edit the crap out of what they've written uh, and kind of give it back to them and do it in Google Docs so you can see all the changes. And they're like, oh, my God, you hate me. And actually kind of explaining, like showing them screenshots of my most recent edit at ESPN or 538. I'm like, my stuff got changed even more than yours did. And I'm a professional and I've been doing this for years. And so kind of re- trying to build them back up. You know, you edits are tough, especially people that think they want to be writers. Then they are writing. And then their first experience is you kind of changing their story entirely. Uh, trying to build their confidence up. So that's part of it too, is like I, I was dealing with someone yesterday who had the longest face because I kind of told her this story is not going to work. Um, 
and, you know, and keeping them motivated and confident enough to know that like, look, not every story is going to work out perfectly. Not every angle that you take is going to be good. Not every piece that you write is going to be organized well enough on the first go. But like, that's why I'm sitting here with you after class or why I'll make myself available whenever I'm in town or whenever I'm around to do it. Um, because there, it's worth it. And I, because I think the biggest thing for me is like, when you see the light bulb come on for them, it is a really awesome, awesome feeling and different than like what I feel as a writer. It's just different because you're passing something on to somebody else and maybe giving them the opportunity to do what you do. And that is an awesome feeling. So a, a couple things there. First of all, as a veteran writer of 89 word leads, I resent everything. <laughs> I resent everything that you said there. <laughs> second of all, second of all, I think it's really important and I'm very happy that you're teaching them about like, you know, how to react to edits, that it's okay that a lot of stuff gets changed, that, you know, sometimes a story that seems like a good idea may not work and has to, you know, be changed or spiked altogether. Like those are things that are not writing, but are really important if you want to get into journalism is knowing that that's going to happen and that's okay. And like how to react to it and not like freak out because somebody's changing the the perfect words that you wrote or changing, tweaking the idea of a story that you thought was one thing and now becomes another. So it's, I wasn't sure if that kind of thing would necessarily come through in a journalism class because, you know, I would imagine that for the, for the most part, you know, teachers that aren't necessarily also journalists may just teach you the mechanics and like, you know, like, like you said, like the who, what, why, when, where, and, you know, how to write a lead, you know, what hard news is, what a second day story is, and not necessarily like how to deal with what happens when you go through that actual process of writing. So it's encouraging. And, I, and I'm very encouraged at the prospects of your students that you are teaching them that. Um, but I do want to go back to something you mentioned earlier because, you know, you brought it up. You know, Jay Adande, who I would imagine most people listening to this podcast know who he is. He's, I believe, now the director of sports journalism at Northwestern. He got you that job there. Was that something where... He approached you. Did you go to him with the idea? What was the conversation like between the two of you uh, and whoever else was involved in terms of getting you to the place where you're at now in teaching? It was a little bit of both, if I'm being honest. I mean, he he basically he he tweeted out that he had gotten the job. I think he's a sports journalism. um, He's the head of the sports journalism kind of department within Medill, uh, which is the name of the journalism program, the really prestigious journalism program in Northwestern. And I reached out to him to congratulate him. I, I was, I thought that was so cool. My, my dad is a professor and I've always kind of thought for years, I never really thought I'd do it now at age 30. Um, but I always thought it would be really cool to, as I'm getting closer to the idea of retirement, you know, hopefully like a good 40 years from now, that maybe I could do that sort of thing as an ease into that as I'm kind of dwindling down uh, or, or drawing down my writing career. But he got that job and I was like, that's so cool that he's doing that because I think academics is really important. Journalism in particular, it's not really taught everywhere. Like I said, I was taught parts of it in high school, but not at all in college other than the school paper. And as newspapers kind of die out and they become, they continue to be expensive to produce, it may become something that is kind of dwindles down even further. And so I think it's really cool that he's doing it in the first place. I reached out to congratulate him. Uh, I've been a big fan of his work for a long time. I've read Jay's work for a long time. Clearly seen him on TV forever. 
Um, and when I did that, he said, no, thank you. I really appreciate that. And he wrote back and he said, you know, you're from Chicago. I'm obviously taking over there. I'm going to have to make some decisions on like hires and try to get more faculty in the program. Is there anybody there that you know of that would be really good to kind of come in as an adjunct professor that I could talk to about teaching, um, you know, in sports, basically? And I like was thinking like, man, I, I probably do know some people, but I kind of got sad because I'm like, you know, I would love to do something like this, but I'm still living in New York. And at the time that he got that job and that we were going back and forth with each other, I knew pretty firmly that there was a pretty good chance I might be leaving. Uh, I, I had been recruited by a couple different news outlets, obviously ended up at ESPN and and 538, they both kind of approached me at the same time separately, even though they're the same company, which was a weird dynamic too. And it's kind of how the joint job kind of worked out. Um, but I knew, and I kind of laid out as a contingency to any place that I would go or the places that were interested in hiring me that anywhere I went to had to let me move to Chicago. I was in a long distance relationship um, with the girl living in Chicago and I was really tired of New York and some elements. And Jared, I think I talked to you about some of that. Like living in New York is just stressful and it's it's a great city. But like, I feel like if you're not in love with it, it's very expensive to live there um, if you don't love it. Like you shouldn't put that much money into living somewhere that you don't love. And um, so I wanted to move to Chicago to be closer to family, little sister, two year old nephew, best friends in the world live here. And so I'd never really lived in Chicago as an adult. And I wanted to try that for a number of reasons. And so I told Jay, I was like, so I, I definitely have people's names I could pass along that would probably love that job, would probably be great for that job. But I'll just also say this, and I don't know if it's possible. I know I don't have anything firm yet. I have a pretty strong sense that within the next three or four months, I could move to Chicago to take another job. Um, and I don't know if, like, if you need someone that's taught before already, and if that's the case, like, I'm happy to pass you other names. But I, that's something that I would love to do. My dad is a professor. I've always kind of wanted to teach at some point. And I mean, like, what better place to do it than a school as prestigious as Northwestern, specifically their journalism program. And I think if you even look at Medill's uh, website or their Twitter handle, their Medill Sports Twitter handle, they list like who graduated from there and their Twitter profile. And it's incredible that people have graduated from there. And so he wrote back really enthusiastically, like, wow, like I had no clue you were trying to get out here. And he kind of was curious about who was trying to hire me. And he's like, oh, and with ESPN, like, that would be awesome. He was like, uh, keep me posted because I will move on that very quickly. Um, if you're interested in coming here and we could have you on staff, that would be fantastic. And so that was how it actually ended up working. It, it drew out for a pretty long time because uh, ESPN moves really slowly and finalizing things. So that took a while to happen. So because of that, the move ended up taking a while to happen. And then just as slowly as ESPN moved, Northwestern can move kind of slowly at times, too. Um, and for a while they were trying to figure out if they were okay with somebody um, coming on that hadn't really taught before because basically they're saying we've got to fill some spots for people that can teach undergrad. And I think for undergrad, there's normally more of a focus on people that have taught because these are people that literally are like brand new to the whole college process as a whole. And so I think they want those to be more exp experienced instructors. But I think they put a little bit more weight on the idea of experience, uh, like actual newsroom experience as opposed to um, teaching experience um, for undergrads. And so 
they ended up saying, oh, we, we found a class for you. You'll be teaching data journalism. It's right up your alley. You'll be the first one to teach it. And they liked me right away because they said that there were some people that reached out to them kind of last minute. They have to designate where they're going to spend quarters. So sometimes they'll spend like a, almost like a study abroad, but in D.C. instead of another country. And they've got a San Francisco campus. And they have to like spell out where they're going to spend a quarter beforehand. And then after they had the students designate where they were going to spend their next quarter, then they put my class up, like saying that I was going to be the one teaching it. And they had people turn around and complain, like, you didn't tell me about this sooner, soon enough because I wanted to take his class. And people were kind of coming up to me when I, I did a guest lecture in one of Jay's classes. And they were like, Chris, would you mind if we Skype into your classes? Could you like just point a camera at the, you know, at the front of the classroom and we can just take your class remotely uh, either to audit it or to just take it for fun or whatever, uh, just so that we can kind of learn. And I was like, I'm cool with that. And then immediately, like an hour later, I got an email from the director of the program. She was like, no, can't do that because they're paying a lot of money to take these classes. We can't have people just taking your class kind of like without paying for it or like without being enrolled. But basically, they, they got rave reviews from students that I, I guess a lot of instructors are older or out of the industry to some extent. You know, they're retired. And so they, to actually have someone that has like hands on experience that's in the industry now that, you know, in one case, I was in a class and I had to cut it short because I had a sports center appearance I had to make. And the fact that a couple of the students were taking pictures, not only of the TV screen while I was on and they were watching from the classroom, but like took pictures around the room. And literally my whole class just stayed just to watch the TV appearance. Like the, these students are incredible. They're totally vested in what they're doing. Um, and they really value the idea of having someone teach them that that they can look at and they can like look at my work and ask me questions about my work and ask me why I write you know, what I mean when I'm talking about usage rate in a story and that they can literally pull up my story from yesterday to ask me that. Um, it's really cool that they can look at my stuff. It's really cool that um, that they're able to have an instructor that can kind of speak to them about something that's happened in the industry now as opposed to only 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Because the industry's changed so much, obviously. You brought up the the data journalism class. I know that was your first experience teaching, but you know, like you mentioned, it's right up your alley. You know, that's a lot of the focus of a lot of your writing. So, what was what was the focus of the class? Was it more on like how to weave data into your writing? Was it how to tell a story with data? Was it you know how to visualize? Was it all of those things? And like, what was you know, a, a day in your first class, like, you know, for, for you in terms of how you prepared and, and, you know, the kinds of things you did to get ready and then to actually teach. And what was a typical day of the class like for the students of your first class? So it, it's challenging um, because the way that you and I would talk about basketball or talk about one of your pieces, like you have to kind of assume that people don't know most of that stuff that again, that class was a little easier in some ways because it was fourth quarter students. It's a year long program. And so they're literally, I actually started teaching them right after they'd gotten their diploma. Technically they had graduated the week before and it was just, they, they have graduation a little early so that they can, um, so that they can walk with other students, but that they still got that last quarter, those last five weeks to take of a course. And so these are students that kind of already knew what they were doing, knew the basics of what they were doing. And this was really a class that like kind of the same way with undergrad where you need to fill a math requirement. And so this is kind of the math data requirement that they have to fill. And so that was cool, too, to look at their evaluations and to see that, 
you know, most of the people said they weren't interested in the course beforehand and that it was something that they had to take for a data requirement. And then to look at their evaluation of like whether they took more from the course than they expected to or liked it more than they expected to. And most of them said that. Um, but the way I approached it basically was to say the way I do it. You know, it's worked for me. This is the best way I know how. And to kind of do it through the prism that uh, when you're looking at numbers, you want just like with any story where you want to find something unusual or something that really pops out or jumps out at you. What I told them is that I base a lot of my work around the idea of outliers and finding numbers that don't really make sense for some reason. And maybe sometimes for obvious reasons, the number wasn't won't make sense. Uh, sometimes you really have to dig and sift through stuff to figure out why the number doesn't make sense. But looking for those sorts of numbers, um, whether it's something that you're noticing from watching the games and just kind of observations that way, or knowing what databases to look at and looking at numbers that way, and being able to point out like one of these things is not like the other. And so that was kind of the idea. Uh, the first day I remember putting them through uh, just kind of like an introduction, uh, having them go around the room and say who they were. And because it was a sports data journalism focused class, trying to get a, a head count of kind of how many of these people really like sports and how many of them hate sports or couldn't care less about it. And so that class was a class of 21 made for a lot of grading. Um, and because there were people that were interested in taking it because they knew who I was or wanted to take my class specifically, they took a, they, they capped the class at a much higher number than what it should have been. I think it's normally like 16 or 17 people and they end up putting in 21. Um, so I went around the class and it ended up being something like a third to like 40% of the class wasn't, into sports really and so I asked them I was like well what are you passionate about if you don't like sports and so I used that information to kind of look for in class examples to use that kind of hit on a lot of them were really interested in social justice um, some of them were really interested in art uh, some of them were interested in um, policy and politics and so spending my off days you know if I didn't have a really heavy day of work for writing for 538 maybe taking a day or an afternoon and kind of just trying to look at news clips and trying to figure out what can I say in class tomorrow that instead of it just being like an NBA or NFL example will be an example that touches on like um, transgender bathroom laws and, and data that is tied to that. Or, you know, what can I look at? There was one person that said she wasn't into sports, but that her mom was a dancer for the Pistons years and years ago. And so she's really into dance and she's really into like, in-game performances, but not really sports. And so looking at like paid, paid uh, discrimination lawsuits as it, you know, as it relates to the idea of cheerleaders and, uh, and palm squads and stuff like that. And so just looking for examples like that, but that I, I wanted to take a lot of time with that the first two weeks, because the last thing I wanted to do was get up and talk about sports three hours every Wednesday in that case to talk about sports and how you to use numbers in sports and then realized that, you know, nobody was really into that or only like two people were into sports. And so spending a lot of time just trying to figure out how to speak their language, because when I was in college, I took a math course and I was petrified of taking it. But it was pretty painless because it was like kind of a, a class that dealt with a lot of word problems. And a lot of those word problems dealt with societal issues like AIDS rates or, you know, healthcare costs and stuff like that. And when you put math in those terms and you give me a word problem, I'm great with it. But when I'm just looking at raw numbers and data sets without any sort of uh, tie to anything tangible, I'm horrible. And so I figured with me, if, you know, if I can get someone to speak my language, I can understand it better. 
maybe I can do the same thing with these kids that are not really looking forward to taking a math class or a data class. And it seemed to work like a charm. Most of them weren't overwhelmed by the numbers and by the stuff that we were looking at in class. And it seemed like most of them liked it. And I, I, I definitely enjoyed teaching them at least. Um, how did you go about teaching them how to translate the stats? I mean, um, and by that, I mean like making it easily digested or consumed by uh, kind of like your everyday reader. So one thing I was taught really early at the journal, this actually was even technically before the journal. So I had like a week training before I started at the journal. It's called the Dow Jones Newspaper Fund. It's a really prestigious program where they put people in there for a week and it's really intense where you're there kind of all day in a classroom and learning these different methods and learning kind of the, the, the basis behind like why you do certain things as a journalist, not just how, but why. And one of the things we learned really early is like not to put too many numbers in a single sentence. And I think that goes a long way in trying to learn how to do this, that, you know, all three of us have used numbers before and kind of writing stories. And this idea that if you are writing about an issue, you, you want to make it bite-sized enough to where someone can understand it. And so you might have a lot of numbers to use. Like I, I wrote a story about Clay Thompson the other day and how quickly he gets off his shot and how it's faster than anybody else in the league. Um, I had dozens of numbers I could have used for that story, but that doesn't mean that you want to put them all in the same graph. Like not only will you lose people because it's a sentence that is just numbers or a paragraph that's just numbers, but it just reads better just like anything else. Just like you wouldn't put too many quotes in one part of the story. You'd want to break them up and kind of for the story to have a flow where it's not totally predictable. Numbers are no different. And actually that was one other thing I was taught at the journal is that you can kind of use quotes. Quotes and numbers are kind of interchangeable to some extent. Like you're using a quote to kind of get at someone's version of the truth and how they interpret the truth. Um, a number is doing the same thing too. As a matter of fact, the number could be even more powerful because you can kind of call someone out on a lie if we're talking about donations that someone said they made and they haven't, and you can look at an account to kind of show that. Um, Who's that about? <laughs> oh, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> but I mean, even a more tangible example than one I remember specifically when I covered the Jets, and uh, I remember asking Rex Ryan a question about why Mark Sanchez's uh, completion rate was so horrible. And Rex was like, oh, well, you know, he throws the ball downfield so much more than everybody else. And anyone who watches the Jets knows that's a bold-faced lie that uh, Mark Sanchez threw more check-down passes than anybody's business and and also got a lot of them intercepted, by the way. But basically, like, there were all sorts of numbers to show, like, what percentage of his passes were traveling 20 yards or more downfield. And so, like, that's fine. I can use your quote, Rex, but right behind your quote, I'm going to have this number that basically calls you a liar. And not even to like make Rex look bad, but it's more to just keep the story honest. That the only other thing I guess I could do is just not use Rex's quote at all. But I mean, he answered the question as honestly as he could, or maybe not as honestly as he could, but like he answered it and I have the right to use the quote. That was what he wanted to respond with. I can just kind of come with evidence that says that's not true. And I, that's kind of what the media as a whole needs anyway, like you said before and alluded to. But I think that's the way in is that you just you don't want to stack too much of anything in one spot. You don't want to have total analysis of a play or a breakdown of a play, 19 paragraphs of it on top of each other without using someone's quote to kind of walk you through their version of what they saw or what they were doing or to just take me through 19 paragraphs of numbers without showing me film or like a practical application of those numbers and what they meant. So it's, it's just like anything else. Like, I don't think 
translating stuff is quite as difficult as what people think in terms of numbers, because I think it works just like anything else you would use in a story, like a quote or something like that. So this semester's class is obviously different. You know, you're teaching different kinds of students. You're teaching a different subject. I actually, I went and looked at the Northwestern website to, for the description of the class. And I found this part really, really interesting. Um, for the final four weeks of the class, the classroom is a simulated newsroom where you cover a beat and file stories on a daily deadline. Um, have you gotten to that part of the class yet? No, uh, but I, I talked enough with my students from last quarter to figure out how that works. And especially the sports focused students are really interesting because they basically pick like a high school team and become a beat writer for that team. Uh, and, you know, I was looking up and I, I, I would listen to their podcast. They did podcast as groups sometimes. I would listen to those or look at their, their real film and stuff like that. Uh, I brought some of them with me to Bulls uh, practices and different things so that they could shadow and kind of see how stuff worked. And um, what was cool about some of that is that they would get their work published sometimes because, you know, high schools, depending on what high school you're writing about and what sport, that's not really getting a whole lot of coverage depending on, you know, where it is and who you're writing about. And so in some cases, like the stories actually, somebody wrote a story. One of my students, Carl wrote a story about someone who I think his brother had been killed the year, a year or two before um, like a high school football football player. And so he kind of did a feature on that player and kind of just his will to kind of persevere through all that and to play and, you know, in honor of his brother. And this is a story nobody else had. And, you know, he basically said that at first you get there. And even though these are high school students that want the attention of, you know, a news outlet, they don't really know who you are. And they're shy uh, to some extent, like they're shy. They don't know why you're there. They don't really know what you're going to say, especially if the team is losing. They don't want to be embarrassed. The coaches are kind of standoffish, but they green light the idea of them coming in to cover a few practices and games. And then kind of the way that these guys opened up to them by the end of that process and, you know, allowing them to write stories even after they're done with that part of the program and continuing to kind of cover games and just go to games and keep the, the line of communication open in case there's a good story somewhere. And so watching students do that and watching, again, watching the light come on for them, uh, the idea that they get comfortable as beat writers and that people can kind of feel more comfortable talking to them and that they get details that nobody else has. Yes, it's on a much smaller scale than me walking into a locker room and having Mello bear his soul to me. But it's it's cool to see that light bulb come on because it's still reporting and it's still like the basics of that uh, undertaking are exactly the same as what you or I would do. And it's it's cool to see them get a chance to do that and to get excited about doing that. Yeah, I think it's such a cool idea to have that in the class. Like I know for me, I went to law school and one of the things that I always say about law school is that it does not teach you to be a lawyer. It teaches you how to pass law school finals. Exactly. Um, exactly. Because yep. it's, you know, they only teach you, you know, the black letter laws for the most part, at least at my school, that was, you know, the, the core classes, that's literally all it is. Um, you know, there are some other classes where they teach you other, you know, interesting things or, whatever it is. But for the most part, you do not learn how to be a lawyer. And that's why a lot of people, when they come out of law school, you know, for the first couple of years that they are lawyers, their firms are like training them on the job. And, you know, you can have internships over the summer or externships during the year, but that's something that you're doing, you know, on your own volition. And it's not necessarily something that law school teaches you. And for 
journalism students to learn how to be journalists and not just learn what journalism is and, you know, the right way to do things to actually put them in that environment and make them do it as part of uh, one of their classes, I think is such a good idea. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's funny. Like it's also interesting too, because, because the program is so big and all of the first quarter students are taking this one methods class to learn the basics all at the same time. And so they're getting different advice in some cases than like other instructors are giving their students. And so they're friends with each other. And so they'll look up and they'll be like, how come my, my instructor said that, or, you know, how come Haley's instructor said that they could do this and this, and you're saying that, that like, that's not allowed or that that's not how you do it. I'm like, well, everybody's different. And it, it is interesting that we're teaching the same thing, but like we all have different styles, but yeah, they, they, they do assignments for me. Like they're at a point now where they're going out and actually reporting and in particular, they're given like spot news assignments where they have to go out and they basically have to find a story and then write it and turn it in within like 12 hours of having started. And I'm supposed to be available, not quite tethered to my phone. And this was kind of difficult because, like I said, most of the instructors are people that are like out of the industry or that this is like their full time job. They're like full time instructors, whereas I'm like a full time reporter and writer. And this is part time for me. It's, it's only a couple of days a week for me. And so the lead instructor of these six sections was like, yeah, like you, I I want you to try to make yourself fully available to them where they can like text or call you or email you at any hour of the day. And if they have questions about their story or they need you to edit stuff through with them and walk them through something that you're just available. And it's like, I can't quite do that. (laughs) Like, you know, I'm on a plane, I'm interviewing Jeannie Buss. I'm like, I'm doing whatever. I can't make myself available every minute, but it has been kind of cool to like have my phone on and have one of them call me and ask me a question from like a crime scene. Um, because like they're going to learn more from that and my response to that and like my edits from that, then they're going to learn from me giving them, sending them an email with 28 facts from a story and then asking them to try to write a lead based off those facts. It's like a fiction, a fictitious story, you know, where they're not actually out doing anything. They're actually just they're, they're looking at a textbook, basically like you can't learn this from a textbook. Maybe you can, but like I don't know anyone that just straight up learned everything from a textbook. Like you could not do this without practical experience. And it's more valuable for them to be getting experience. Like I've had a couple of them say uh, when I first started the last class I was teaching over the summer, a couple of them were covering the NBA draft the week that everything started. The class started and they're like, Chris, I'm so sorry. Like, I think I'm going to have to miss your class. Is that okay? And I like laugh so hard. I'm like, is it okay that you missed my class to like go be a journalist? Go be a journalist. Like me teaching you isn't making you a journalist. Like I can help you get there, but it would take a lot longer me teaching you how to do it than you like getting experience along the way as I teach you. I can always go back through the lesson plan with you once you get back. Just go, go to the draft, you know, and someone is going to a healthcare summit the other day in DC. I'm like, go to that and come back and you know, and write a story off of it. Like, I'd much rather you do that and learn that way than just me sit here and teach you in a classroom. Because I don't, because of how I was taught and the fact that I didn't have a formal um, classroom teaching session, you know, as a journalist, I'm less or inclined to tell them that that's how they have to learn and how they're going to learn. It sounds like, you know, from how engaged you are just talking about it and it's like your voice, you sound, you know, we've talked about a lot of things I can tell when you're excited and when you're not like you sound super excited about it. Is this something you can see yourself doing for like a long time? I know you mentioned being interested in potentially doing it toward, you know, the end of your writing career, but you know, you got into it pretty early. You're 30. I mean, do you see this being something that 
you know, becomes a long-term thing that you just do all the time on the side. I love it. I mean, and, and what's, what's interesting, like, first of all, I answer your question. Yeah, I could see doing this for as long as I write and maybe even longer based on the fact that there's nothing stopping you from doing it. Although I do, like I said, I, I do see very quickly how, how much more valuable some of the information can be from someone that's in the industry and really heavily involved in it as opposed to someone that's out. I still think those people have plenty to teach and I think I would too, but I, I like it even more being able to do it as I'm in this process, the same way I was doing um, the talk today with the high school students, like the way their face lights up when you have a story about someone they can relate with, you know, I told them today about asking Kevin Durant why he lies about how tall he is. And, you know, they thought that was so funny and so cool. And, you know, just, just asking me anything like they, everything I have to say, they find interesting. You should have seen the way that they were like treating like a celebrity on the way out. Uh, I tweeted that they asked me, I had told an anecdote about how this was the first thing I ever felt extremely, extremely talented in. Um, because I felt like I was a really good singer. And then I went to audition for American Idol and quickly realized that I was nowhere near as talented as I thought. And they were like, oh, wait, you auditioned for American Idol. How far did you make it? And then I told them I made it through one round. They're like, oh, wait, we got to hear you sing. And so I did that. But like, they're so in love with everything. Like the, the idea that they're talking to a real life journalist, like you're an alien of some sort. They want to know everything about how you got here and, and how that process is. And to some extent, even when you get to teach journalism students in in journalism school, it's still kind of like that. Like I said, they were totally engaged when I was on TV. They thought that was really cool. Um, And so the idea of being able to help them, um, like I like doing what I do. I, I think it's really cool to see a black kid who can write about data and do that seamlessly with the idea of like being in a locker room. And, and everything else and, and maybe taking a slightly different approach to doing this. But I see even more value maybe in the idea of teaching other people how to do that or like making regular appearances to like tell people that they can do it, even if it's something that's not on their radar screen, that they can do it and that it's possible. Um, my high school, since I left, has gotten much, much different in terms of the makeup of it. It's um, the, when I was there, I think I was like one of maybe three or four black students on like a 30 person newspaper staff. And I went back to speak to them. And now it's something like 25 or 30 kids and like 21 of them are black. Um, it's much more black school than it was before. And like I look up all the time and see very few people that look like me in my industry, um, specifically women. You know, th- th- I think there's there's only one woman in the entire league that's a beat writer, I think. And I think it's Candace Buckner. Um, there's just so few people that do that. Well, I take that back. I think there's someone who uh, covers the Lakers for the times. Uh, mm-hmm. Tanya, I think she Tanya is too. Gangoli, yeah. 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 So there's a couple, but it's very rare. Uh, there's very few people that do it. And so like speaking to people that don't look the same as everybody else is in this industry, that matters to me. I, I love the idea of doing it at Northwestern, but even Northwestern, like that's a really elite prestigious group of kids. I, I even more enjoy the idea of like talking to people that, are trying to figure out if this is something they could see themselves doing. Like I love talking to high school students um, and want to do that more, especially in a city like here where you've got a lot of problems in the schools. I don't even think people know to look at this as like a possibility or how they would do it. And so just representation is so important and showing them that someone that looks like them can do that is really important to me. So I want to do more of that, but absolutely I want to teach more um, going forward. And I, I kind of see why JA did what he did. He and I had talked about, some of that stuff uh, we didn't, I didn't, I had no clue he was going to leave ESPN, 
But he and I had gotten drinks one day. We both had a little bit of time. And he, every time I talked to him, like his schedule just sounded so brutal between writing and he obviously did around the horn and he was traveling so much. Like he was doing the sideline interviews with pop and everybody else on the West coast. And he was trying to be in San Francisco for games for the program that Northwestern has out there. He had to be in DC for the program out there. I don't think he ever gave up his place in LA. So he still had a place there. He was obviously teaching and running the program here in Chicago. And he just sounded like spread so thin to where it was like taking a real toll on him. And so I should have seen that coming, but to some extent he seems like more fulfilled now because he's actually getting real time to deal with the students instead of having to split it with everything else. And so for me, I, I, I pulled more, more all nighters in like the last month and a half than I've ever pulled in my life because trying to lesson plan and trying to teach and, and on top of that, trying to travel and trying to podcast now and trying to write and trying to report and trying to research and trying to watch games, which now the season has started it's so and trying to grade papers, which probably takes more time than anything else. It's it's so much stuff. And I, I have to figure out how to balance those things better. But I absolutely want to do it. And I have people around me have said, you're crazy for trying to teach twice a week for three hours at a time, six hours a week and grading and doing everything else and picking up podcasting now all at the same time. Like you're crazy for doing that. And I think I am a little bit crazy, but I there's a part of me that like wouldn't change any of it right now because I'd rather try to do it all and realize like maybe I need to scale back than not try to spread my wings and do as much as I can, especially when it comes to, like helping students. Yeah. So you're definitely crazy, first of all. Um, <laughs> but, and I, I know we're coming up on having to finish up here pretty soon, but I'm glad that you brought up, you know, people that look like you in newsrooms and, and how important that is because, you know, you're a black man, you were brought into the journalism program at Northwestern by another black man, but you work in an industry that, you know, is filled with people that look like me and Jordan. They're mostly white and mostly men. And I'm curious what the makeup of your classes looks like and, you know, how important it is to you or what it feels like to you to be shaping the careers of, you know, not just people that want to be in the industry, but also potentially people that could join people like, like you and Candace Buckner as, you know, more brown faces in the industry, because it's definitely something it's universal agreement that that's something that we need more of. Yeah. Uh, well, I, so the makeup of my class to answer that question first, um, I teach 10 students and I think I have, hope I'm not forgetting anybody here. Three black students, two students that are international from China and one, uh, one Latina that's in the class or one Hispanic woman. And so I guess more than half of it is people of color, which is awesome. Um, and I, I love teaching this class. Like they're, it, it, it's so awesome to see that. And one of the students is actually from my high school. Um, that's awesome. Which like he, he went to my high school and I had no clue that he'd gone to my high school. So he saw me bring up an example in class. Like I was trying to find really good examples of stories written recently and really bad ones. And I didn't like, I don't read bad stuff. So I don't really know where to find bad examples of bad writing. Um, so I like looked to my hometown, which is really small. And so they basically the website there that covers news, like writes press releases. And so he asked me that day after class, like, are you from, did you go to HF, Homewood Flossmore? And I said, yeah, how did you know? And he's like, well, you pulled up that random example about Flossmore. And so I figured you had to be from there because who else would do that? I was like, okay. Um, but talking with him and, and just talking with those students and in some cases hearing them talk about some of the same things that they 
that I went through that now they're going through. I'm sure other people that aren't of color go through some of those same challenges too, but it's like, I see myself in some of them and it just, that's why I was saying it's really important to me to try to speak outside of Northwestern too to students, mainly because Northwestern for as diverse as it is, Northwestern is still like a level that almost nobody gets to. It's a school that is incredibly, incredibly prestigious that has one of the lowest admission rates in the country. I think it's like just above or just below 10% of undergrads that apply there, get in. Um, it's very, I, I was too afraid to apply there when I was coming out of high school. Um, and you know, so the idea of speaking to students that look like me that don't go to Northwestern is really important too, because maybe I can convince someone to apply for a journalism program that otherwise wouldn't have because they see someone that looks like them and someone that like is math averse and someone that, um, you know, that doesn't like numbers, but really, really love sports can do this too. And that you don't have to be, you, you know, you can just be really interested in sports and that can kind of catapult you into doing what I do to some extent. Um, and so I, the representation matters so much. And I, I, to some extent, I think that it's probably a very, it's very true of even the students that I do teach in Northwestern, but probably even more so outside of Northwestern. I know we need to wrap up here, but I just kind of want to end on this. Um, I mean, what needs, what needs to change in terms of, or like to get more POCs like opportunity and to uh, kind of change the spectrum as like we need it to change. I think there's a lot of things to go into that, but I think the the first one, um, and this is not to, to down him too much, uh, he and I have actually had, you know, conversations via social media that we hadn't had before. Um, but I remember he and I got in a pretty heated debate. And I'm not the first person that's happened with. I know he's gone back and forth with Bomani as well. But um, Darren Ravel tweeted one day, probably like five or six months ago. It was kind of like, it, it must have been like how I got into the journalism industry day on Twitter or something. But he basically was tweeting like that he used to like cover and like kind of freelance games for free uh, when he was younger and that like he has like a next door neighbor, like a friend of his, like has a kid that does that. And that that's the best advice you can ever give someone is just to work for free because it kind of gets your foot in the door and it, it shows that you aren't doing it for the money that you're doing it because you want to do it and that it's important. And like, yeah, obviously anybody that can just do something without having to worry about being paid by all means, if you if you really want to do something and can take, the hit financially of not being paid to put your time into something. Absolutely. You should do that. If you feel like that's the best way for you. I was really opposed to it because I said, look, man, like my family was actually pretty decently well off. Like we weren't super, super wealthy or anything like that, but like a middle-class upper middle-class family, um, like borderline, you know, maybe less wealthy version of the Cosby's to some extent, my family and the suburbs of Chicago and I like barely could make that work. I took an unpaid internship. It was the worst work experience of my life um, here in Chicago at the Red Eye. Uh, and it was awful. Like I would, I would sit there and I would be, I would literally be hungry trying to write stories and trying to do interviews and like run down, like worn down because I would be walking to my interviews halfway across the city. I'll never forget. I'll never forget this. I walked from the Tribune Tower in Chicago out past the United Center to go do an interview. I left like an hour and a half early because I didn't have train fare and because I, I didn't have money for a cab and was too proud to like tell my editors that and walked all the way back. So walked more than two hours to go do a 10 minute interview with someone like you, no one should have to do that. And like that was something where I was too proud to even tell my parents 
that I was struggling that much and that I was that hungry every day. But like, if I can't make that work and my family makes that kind of money and like, you know, I'm in a good position, I, I can't, I can't imagine asking or expecting people that have less than me or my family did to do that. And, and that, that's just, it's asking way too much of people. And it, it's a way of keeping the status quo the way it is. Just like anything else. Like, it's not that hard. You look around statistically at stuff. Look at the average net worth of white people in this country and the average net worth of black people in this country. And it's literally like, I, I think it's something like either 60,000 or like 70,000 or like in the six figures for white people. And it's literally like $10 or like $20 or negative money for black people, which like, I, I remember the first time I saw that statistic, how crazy it was. But then you look like, look, all it takes is like reading, like read about redlining, read about all sorts of like the GI bill and read about all sorts of other stuff in this country. Just like how the, the, the gaps in this country have kind of persisted and how the wage gap and like the learning gap and everything else in this country has just widened even further and like probably is on the cusp of doing that even more so now with the current administration. But like it doesn't take much to see like there are real disparities in this country. And if you don't pay attention to the barriers to entry for certain industries like this, it's going to get worse. And so, yeah, like it would be great if everybody could just take a non-paying job or an internship or something like that. But most people can't afford to do that. There are a lot of white people that couldn't afford to do that too, but that would dis- that would disproportionately affect people of color even more. And it's kind of impossible to expect that you're going to get a great pool of people to do that job. If you tell them we can't pay you, but we'd love to have you work for us. Like at that point, it becomes people that are wealthier or have more affluence than other people do that become the people that get those jobs. And because they get that job, they get an opportunity before someone else does because they've got work experience at an earlier age and they know how to write a lead, whereas it might take someone else till they're 24, 25 to learn how to write one. So that's, I mean, it's like not rocket science at all, but it's something that I don't know if it'll change because as these newspapers are in bad spots, and as these websites are in bad spots, financially, they're not going to have more money to offer people. They're going to have less. It's going to become more appealing to them to go to people who are willing to work without being paid. And so that's the challenge is I don't see how that gap closes. I really don't. Um, but I, I, man, I sure as hell hope it does. And I, I, I really hope that I have some role in making some of that happen, even if it's just trying to develop an interest in people that didn't yeah. know that they would otherwise be interested. It's, it's kind of sucks to say, like, the best way to get into it is to do it for free. Because first of all, like, nobody should have to work for no money. Like, if you work, you should get paid. And second of all, because it ignores the financial reality of such a large pool of people that would want to get into it. Like you said, there are a lot of people, you know, black, white, Latino, Asian, anyone that can't work for free. And then to say, like, if that's the best way to do it and otherwise you shouldn't do it, like, that just closes off so many people from being able to get into the industry in the first place. It's, it's awful. And it's, uh, it's something that I kind of feel like programs like Northwestern are great, but it's, it's, you know, and I'm sure there's financial aid that comes along with it, but like there are ways to get into the industry later and journalism school is one of them and going to a school that has connections like Northwestern does is one of them, but it's, it's challenging. And like, not everybody has the time to do that. Like these students, I'm amazed at how much time they have to put into school they're in class four days a week. And then on the fifth day, they do like activities tied to the program. And so they don't really have full time to work. And it's just like, how are they supposed to earn a living? My internship the summer that I was here at Red Eye was 40 hours a week. It was a full time job. 
And all I got was like a half credit going back to Michigan with. It was so awful. And like, I, I would not wish that upon anybody. And that was a relatively, relatively prestigious internship to get at the time. Maybe even now it's, it's tied to the Chicago Tribune. And I think most people would be really well off to get that sort of opportunity. But I, I don't know if I would do that again. It was that bad. Um, it helped me get my next internship and that's what it was about. But it's just like, you don't want to have people thinking that that's the way in because you're going to close it off even more than you realize. The same thing with all sorts of stuff. Like if we're looking at the reality of stuff, affirmative action, a lot of people don't understand why it's necessary. But like when you look at the makeup of the industry and a lot of industries and the unemployment rates among certain groups and like the wage gap in certain groups, like it becomes really clear quickly why you need it. And like, I, I wouldn't even have any second thought about saying that we still need stuff in place to try to level out what the industry look like, looks like, because I, I think it's crazy. Like basketball is one thing, baseball and soccer to have reporters that like, we barely have any reporters that can speak the language of the guys that play these sports. And like, that, that's crazy to me. James Wagner for the New York times, like he, mentions that all the time that like the ability to talk speak spanish with baseball players like how many stories he gets from that and it's so crazy to me that like there aren't more people that do that but immediately my first thought is the barrier to entry for those folks must be really tough and we have to i I would really hope that we do something about that as a company at espn and just as an industry and in journalism yeah uh chris thanks so much uh for coming on this has been awesome uh really enlightening and just a wonderful chat thank you so much no problem guys thanks for so much for having me and good luck with this podcast i think the idea of it is so cool oh, cool we appreciate that uh i'm jordan he's jared and uh this is chris herring thanks again uh yeah.